Welcome to Talks at Stellenbosch Uni, Stellenbosch University's podcast where we talk about current topics and innovative research done at the university. Here's your host, Angelique Dreyer. Today we are in conversation with Professor Bob Mash, who is a leading and award-winning researcher working in the division of family medicine and primary care at Stellenbosch University. Having established the discipline of family medicine in South Africa and in other countries across Sub-Saharan Africa, he remains committed to the development of community-orientated primary care and district health services in the region. Good morning, Prof, and thank you for joining us. Good morning. It's great to have you because your research is really valuable given the current pandemic we are facing right now. And also considering that you have an interest in primary health care in the Cape Metro. Can you tell us more about how primary health care has reorganized itself to respond to COVID-19 in the Metro? Yes, thank you. Maybe I can start just by giving you a, a, a brief update on where we are with the epidemic and then talking specifically yes. about primary health care. So, you know, as of the 30th of June, um, we had uh, just under 62,000 cases in the Western Cape of COVID-19, and three quarters of them uh, were in the metro in Cape Town. Uh, yeah. And as of that date, we'd, we'd hospitalized about uh, 8,000, just under 8,700 uh, patients, which is so 14% of all the cases ended up in hospital. And we'd had uh, 1,813 deaths, which represents 2.9% uh, of all the cases that we know of, uh, and 21% uh, of all the people that were hospitalized. So the way that the, um, the metro health services, in fact, the provincial health services are thinking about the sort of care for COVID-19, they've, they've, they've got uh, a focus on suppression and containment. Uh, they've got a focus on reorganizing the health services, the health platform, and then also a focus, of course, on managing uh, adverse uh, outcomes and recovery and ongoing vigilance and humanitarian support for people. So what I'm going to speak about a little bit now is how we've reorganized sort of primary health care, which is at the sort of heart of that whole system. And of course, about you know 90% uh, of all people who get COVID-19 are going to manage themselves or be helped in primary care. So the, the, the idea really with primary health care uh, reorganization was to try and reduce risk for many of the patients. So to, to try and reduce the risk for people with like diabetes and hypertension and HIV and TB so that they don't have to come and gather in large groups at the health facilities, um, to try and decongest our health facilities uh, so that it's more possible to maintain social distancing uh, for the people that are there. And of course, to free up some capacity amongst our uh, staff to manage the surge of patients with COVID-19. So those were some of the principles that we had. So in essence, practically what we've done is um, across all of the community health centers, we initially have set up what's called screening and streaming uh, so at the door or before you get into the facility, everybody is screened for COVID-19 and then separated into what we've referred to as either a hot stream, if you screen positive, or a cold stream, if you screen negative. And then in both of those streams, uh, we've 
set up an immediate see and treat station. So pay, people with minor ailments can be seen and treated and if possible sent home even before they really get into the facility uh, proper. And then in the hot stream, those who screen positive for COVID-19, um, people with mild cases are, are, are tested and treated and often sent home. People who are moderate uh, to severe are admitted to the facility where they would be stabilized and receive oxygen and so on, um, and referred onwards to, to hospital. Um, and then in the cold stream, uh, people with uh, acute problems that are not related to COVID uh, would then be admitted to the normal emergency center or emergency room and treated. And then we would continue with many of the um, services. So immunizations continue, family planning continues, maternity care continues. A lot of the people with chronic conditions, we're trying to do more in the community and less in the facility. Uh, and then a lot of the support services have also significantly reduced. So eye health, oral health, and so on uh, uh, are doing a lot less and, and trying to do more telephonic support. So that's basically how we've reorganized things. And the, I guess some of the key issues that we've had to deal with, uh, the one, of course, is the infrastructure. So we've had to build a lot of additional, um, often prefabricated infrastructure at health centers to uh, maintain these separate streams, and also dealing a lot with the anxiety and stress of the actual staff around uh, becoming infected or being infected themselves with COVID-19. Wow, yes, that is quite interesting. And I can only imagine how stressful and how anxiety levels must be incredibly high situation. You have touched on the way in which community centers have reorganized, but are there any other ways in which community health workers have also assisted in this response? So the, the Metro Health Service, in fact, the entire province, two or three years ago, adopted an approach which we've called community-orientated primary care. And so this is an approach that um, tries to look at the entire population, you know, that uh, is being served and not just the people that turn up at the health facility and has involved the establishment of teams of community health workers. So in the metro, um, particularly in the more vulnerable communities that largely are using the public sector, um, we now have covered all of those communities with teams of community health workers. So there's, I think, around two and a half thousand community health workers. They work in teams of sort of 10 to 15. Each community health worker is responsible for about 250 households. Um, and they are supported in the community by a professional nurse. And that whole team is um, employed by a non-profit organization under contract with the Department of Health and linked to the local primary care facility. So they they try to work in a, in a fairly integrated way with the nurses and doctors at the local facility. So having got that um, uh, sort of platform in place, the community health workers have been absolutely instrumental in our response to uh, COVID-19, uh, particularly assisting with community screening and testing. And I'll maybe say a little bit more about that later. And also with the a shift towards home delivery of medication, which has, which I also maybe talk a little bit more uh, later on. 
And then also, as I mentioned, trying to get people with chronic conditions, with, with conditions that put them more at risk of a severe outcome, getting them out of the facility and trying to follow up more in the community. So uh, community health workers doing a little bit more to follow up patients with TB and HIV, uh, with mental health problems, and also with non-communicable diseases like diabetes and hypertension. I can also imagine that for the community health workers, considering all the pressure that they under, that they would most likely also require support pertaining to their mental health as well. And you've already touched on home delivery of medication. That is the next question I'd like to ask as well. Prof, would you say that there's been good progress in terms of home delivery of medication? Yeah, I think one of the sort of, I would say, quite amazing innovations that has happened in response to COVID is the shift towards home delivery of medication by community health workers. And I suspect that that will may well continue even after the epidemic um, has has uh, has died off. Um, so we already had a system whereby people received prepackaged medication, but they had to pick it up at the facility or at a support group. Um, and what and of course not, none of that is really either desirable or possible during the epidemic. And so what we've done is we've linked that prepackaged medication, taken it to these nonprofit organizations that are employing the community health workers. And then the community health workers have been delivering that to the door, you know, to the home. Uh, so, so far since we started, I think it was in April, uh, they've delivered uh, about 360,000 medication parcels in the metro. Um, and they've had about a 70% success rate of actually finding, finding the person at the right address. Um, and so that has meant that, for example, somebody with diabetes doesn't have to get on public transport, doesn't have to travel to the health facility and then gather in a crowd with other people, putting themselves at risk of infection. Um, and it's also meant that we've managed to decongest a lot of the facilities um, and of course, as the community health worker is visiting that household on a monthly basis, it gives us the opportunity to also uh, screen for COVID-19 and, and other conditions like TB and to provide um, health education and information to that household. So I think that's been quite a, a successful um, innovation. And in fact, we've also put out a, a WhatsApp bot to the public in Cape Town. So if anybody is on chronic medication um, in the public sector in Cape Town, and they want to receive it at home, they can uh, register uh, on WhatsApp by sending the message hi to 087-240-6325, and then answering the questions about you know, what their address is and what their local um, community health center is and so on. Prof, what about community screening and testing? How well has that process gone? Okay, so that um, process, that's been quite an interesting process and our approach to community screening and testing has changed and shifted over the last two or three months. Um, the community health workers, of course, have also been instrumental in assisting with that. Um, initially, our approach was to identify known cases of COVID-19 in vulnerable communities uh, in Cape Town, 
and to then screen um, essentially the households around the known cases in those uh, communities uh, for for COVID-19. So, so community health workers would essentially go to the households, two or 300 households around the known cases, uh, screen for symptoms, and then those that screen positive um, would then be referred to a mobile testing center in the community, usually a, a, a a mobile van with uh, the ability then to take a nasopharyngeal swab. Um, and and then those tests, of course, would go off uh, to the laboratory and, you know, you would be then informed in due course if you were negative or positive. So, in fact, by the middle of May, we had screened, I think, about 124,000 people uh, and performed just over 12,000 tests and identified just over 500 uh, people with COVID-19. But we ran into two problems. Uh, the one was uh, there were issues in some communities around security uh, and the like, you know, sometimes the mobile testing sites were, uh, were threatened. Um, but the more serious problem actually was the turnaround time from the laboratories. So, uh, the capacity of the laboratories to keep up with the testing uh, was very limited. And in fact, in some of the facilities were reporting that it was taking up to 31 days to get a, a result, uh, which of course then makes the whole exercise ineffective because you can't actually, by the time you have the result, the person has already come out of isolation and their contacts, if they were infected, would already be infected. <laughs> and uh have uh, infected other people. So, so the, the laboratory turnaround time was a major limiting factor. And uh, as a result of that, we changed the strategy. So, so now what is happening is that the community health workers are still screening every household in their um, area that they're responsible for, but they're only sending for testing to the primary care facility people over the age of 55 and people with comorbidities such as diabetes that screen positive. Um, yeah, so, so that's the current approach and, and that has taken a lot of pressure off the laboratories so that we're now getting the test results much quicker. Um, but of course, the, the testing is done in a much more focused way uh, on those who are likely to have a more severe course if they are infected. Prof, just to follow up on what you've just said now, is the turnaround time now being reduced from 31 days to... So I think, yeah, so I think my, the feedback that I've had is that, yeah, so the uh, uh, amount that the, the laboratories have now caught up, I think, with the backlog of tests uh, and the goal... I think was for a sort of 48 hour turnaround time. <laughs> that was the original goal. And I don't know where they are exactly now, but I think the, the turnaround time is, is much improved. And of course the uh, priority in the laboratories is, is to the hospitalized patients. So I think their turnaround time will be a lot faster even than the ones that are screened in the community. Yes, that's good news. Okay, Prof, so given the lessons learned, how does all of this fit into a broader approach to community-orientated primary care? So, yeah, as I mentioned earlier on, you know, we've, over the last two or three years, we've been trying to actually shift the entire system towards a community-orientated primary care approach. And I think what, the, what we've seen with the response to the 
COVID-19 epidemic is that some of the elements of that that we'd managed to put in place have been fundamental in the sort of the agility and scale of our response. So having these teams of community health workers with their sort of designated geographical areas, having the links between the community-based and the facility-based um, members of that team, um, having the contractual relationships between these nonprofit organizations in the Department of Health and that relationship partnership and, and the ability, I think, to do change management. So a lot of these elements um, that we've worked on over the last two or three years, I think, have been uh, foundational to, to the strength of the response that we've made. I think the areas that we still uh, have to do more work on and which have also been in some ways weaknesses in the, in the current approach is the um, engagement with other stakeholders, um, for example, uh, social services um, and the engagement with the communities themselves. I think that still needs a lot more strengthening. Um, and also, I think the health information system, you know, we, we would like to have a lot more um, technology, mHealth technology uh, that, for example, the community health workers can use more easily to collect and record information. Um, but by and large, I think the COPC approach has been shown to be an effective one. And, and we're quite excited to go to go forward with that and to strengthen that uh, in the future. Great. Prof, it is clear that there are many people working very hard to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and to save lives. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Yeah, as you say, all of the work that has gone into um, trying to have an effective response at the sort of primary healthcare level. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Follow all the latest Stellenbosch University news at www.sun.ac.za or follow us on all the largest social media platforms.